I V M. Today, thanks to social media and digital empowerment, I think a brand at best is you know a curator of conversations around what it stands for. Mm. So people have as much of a say, and I think brands that have adapted and recognize the fact that. consumers are as much part of what they stand for mm. have thrived which means the ability to participate in real conversations right have your brand point of view so your brand stands for a certain set of attributes a certain set of values mm. but encourage consumers to come in participate create co-create mm. curate and even critique the brand sometimes Hello and welcome to the Filter Coffee podcast. Today we have someone who I've been wanting to have on the show for a fairly long time. It's a, a name that is extremely famous in the marketing circles as Lloyd Mathias. Lloyd uh, used to lead marketing for for Pepsi many years back and then after that uh, he held a series of marketing leadership roles across uh, HP, Tata Teleservices and and Motorola. And uh, Presently, Lloyd is an angel investor and uh, a marketing strategist, uh, working independently. Welcome to the Filter Coffee Podcast, Lloyd. Thank you, Karthik. Great to be here. I want to start off, obviously, with uh, your your latest chapter in life. Um, uh, you know, we had a quick chat a few days back, and then I was just thinking, you know, if if, if someone like me who's who's outside this ecosystem, right? I, I work for a for a large network. If I were to look at the The, the startup journey of India, so to say, there's of course the the Reliance and, mm-hmm. and the Tatas and all of that mm-hmm. that happened, and then probably the the tech related uh, ecosystem probably started in the in the early nineties, mm-hmm. late eighties mm-hmm. sort of thing, and I think that's been one chapter, and then the other chapter entirely is the one which is the post Google, post Facebook, mm-hmm. maybe post two thousand seven sort of an ecosystem, right? You've been at the vantage point. to look at this market and especially the startups now that you're spending a lot more time with them how do you think we've done as a country when it comes to uh, technology entrepreneurship i think it's still evolving though i'd like to say that you know the, the rapid acceleration that you know i've seen uh, largely outside the ecosystem the last 18 odd months have been part of it is uh, quite dramatic uh, mm. so by this what i mean is that you know one is the funding ecosystem has evolved mm. uh you know folks like me who began my career in the early 90s you know if you had a great idea you didn't know what to do with it right unless you had someone to fund you mm. now it's perfectly normal for you know young person straight out of engineering school business school to within a year or two you know get two or three co-founders get started on idea get funding so i think one is the funding ecosystem has evolved Two is, I think, the larger acceptance of entrepreneurship as a career option. Uh, there was a time when you know most kind of families yeah. kind of looked at entrepreneurship as you know going out on a limb. Hey, you know what are you going to do? Where are you going to build your capital base? I think now though there's a much better understanding of the fact that hey, entrepreneurship is a valid choice. In fact, very often it's a very successful career choice that people make, mm. and I think that is great. And allied with that, I think also is the fact that. it's pretty okay to try and fail so you know people are willing to start up recognizing it's not working mm. pivot around do something else second try doesn't work but you want to take up a career job uh, a corporate job so i think these two parts have made 
made it far more, uh, you know, a more credible and a more worthwhile option. Mm. I think that is usually positive. Uh, the other thing that I would say very clearly in the context of India is also the fact that entrepreneurship actually gives India a real chance to, you know, play at a world level. If you look at traditionally through the 70s, 80s, 90s, let's say the post-liberalization, mm. you had the Airtels, the companies that really set, you know, started off. And I think it took a long time before they became global players. Mm. And today you look at, you know, the top 100 unicorns in the world. There are eight Indian companies, right? So in that sense, it's reduced the gap between the, you know, the developed world and the developing world. And I think the startup ecosystem is far more democratic, you know, mm. based on kind of digital infrastructure. It just makes the whole process that much more swifter, which is great. Mm. Mm. But while, while there are eight unicorns in the, in the top list, etc., one view of it, mm-hmm. not necessarily my view, mm-hmm. one view of that is they're all Indian versions of something that happened outside India, right? probably mostly in the, in the US. Sure. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but how original our entrepreneurial journeys has been in the last 10, 15 years? Is, is, that, a, is that a problem you see for India? I don't see that to be a problem. I do recognize that, uh, you know, purely as an entrepreneur, when you look at how you're going to get your venture funded, uh, one of the easier routes is, you know, kind of replicating a global established model. What I do see, though, which is increasing uh, quite a bit, is that sooner than later, the Indianness of the whole aspect kicks in. The fact that, you know, India represents what a sixth of the world population, mm. but more importantly, that you have to do it differently, right? And in a lot of globally replicated models, I think the hockey stick point of inflection has come when you've injected an element of Indianness. Mm. You know, for me in the whole e-commerce space, clearly what Flipkart was doing had been done before. Mm. But you made cash on delivery real, that opened up a whole ecosystem. Right? So I think it's also the ability to kind of tweak it around to recognize that this works better in an Indian ecosystem. And therefore, how are you going to take it to the next level? And I'm seeing increasingly a lot of this, you know, being typically Indian. Again, if you look at, you know, the car hire model, the Uber kind of model, the OTP, which Ola does, is a typically Indian thing, right? It kind of ensures that the transaction is literally consummated. You give the number and the driver puts it down and the whole thing works. So I think the fact that even globally established models need to get tweaked around, the fact Mm. that you know, you know, in India, things can change so dramatically. And I think that is something that's come into play in a big way, right? So that's not been a hindrance, that's been good. Mm-hmm. And indeed, when these tweaks kind of settle down, they actually get replicated in large parts of the developing world. So I think it's... it's, it's that's positive. true, yeah. But, you know, I think the extension of that thought is also that, um, you know, the wait for an, a made in India product, mm-hmm. an inspired mm-hmm. in India product sure, sure. To, to make it, very big, mm-hmm. you know, outside India. Mm-hmm. And when I say product, I'm not just referring to uh, a piece of code or, or an app, sure. but generally, you know, a product that's sure. made here, which sure. is globally. Sure. And I think there are a lot of exciting things that are happening. For example, mm-hmm. I think Bira is a wonderful example. Mm-hmm. Right? They have a, a great tagline that says imagined in India mm-hmm. and um, uh, and they're doing very well mm-hmm. uh, in international markets. Sure. But largely that seems to have been a, a missing link, so to say, where we don't have enough products that are made here, which which are adopted mm-hmm. globally, right? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's true to a large extent. I think there's two parts. I think one is, you know, in a sense, India's kind of late entry, so to speak, in this global ecosystem, you know, largely kind of deriving from the post-90s era when liberalization opened, when Indian companies really 
kind of suddenly open to a global comparative world, mm. right? And a few companies of that originated in the 90s, I mean, Airtel comes to mind most obviously, that really opened up. But the moment, I think a lot of Indian companies, you know, start kind of putting scale behind their enterprise. You know, to my mind, the Geo launch is one classic. It was, it was a game changer, not just uh, in India, but truly globally. The fact that, you know, you've changed India from being possibly one of the world's lowest penetrated data markets to the highest penetrated data markets all in the span of two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal. So I think the new internet world permits this kind of step change that wasn't, you know, so apparent and easy in the brick and mortar world, right? Mm. Think of how many Indian companies made it to the Fortune 500 in the first 50 years of the Fortune 500, right? There were a couple of public sector yeah. giants, maybe Indian Oil or Steel Authority or whatever. And now in a similar yardstick, if you look at companies that mm. have been born since 2000, uh, you know, we have a fair share of our. So I think the appetite for risk uh, given funding, I think is there. I think the ingenuity comes naturally uh, mm. in the context of, you know, what we as Indians stand for. Thirdly, I think is that our proclivity to tech, even if you look at, you know, Microsoft and Google being headed by people of Indian origin, I think really gives us a fair bit of an advantage. And lastly, I think at 1.3 billion, you've got a fairly large domestic consumption, right? Yeah. Which few few global economies can say when you have a domestic consumption that, you know, a lot of companies can survive serving only Indians. Hmm. So the immediate need to go global is not there. But I think barriers are breaking. And a lot of the new startup ecosystem truly have a global outlook, mm. which is mm. uh, which which bodes very well for our country. You, know, you you mentioned tech in this, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is a hypothesis I have, and I, I don't know if this is correct. The the tech thing that you spoke about is that a preoccupation within the entrepreneur ecosystem? In the sense, do you see enough happening in the? the traditional FMCG space, which is still a wonderful, thriving market in India. Right? There's so much headroom uh-huh, uh-huh. to grow. Do, do you see a lot of that happening or do you, do you feel that overall the ecosystem is probably skewed towards technology solutions to problems? Is oh, vastly skewed towards technology mm-hmm. solutions. So mm-hmm. that point I completely concede, I think it's vastly skewed. I think one part also because you know, traditional consumer brick and mortar businesses, consumer durables, fast moving consumer goods, are dominated by global majors, country yeah. after country, you know, space after space. And a lot of that is deeply entrenched dominance because mm. of brands built over generations over a value of time, because of great distribution networks, physical distribution networks, because of relationships built and nurtured over a value of time. Mm. And I think these are very difficult to displace. So this is not something where, uh, you know, so mm. in a sense, it'll take an enterprise about 15, 20 years mm with enormous amounts of funding mm. uh, that can go head on against these global uh, behemoths. Mm. Whether the funding ecosystem is so evolved, that may be difficult. Because mm. if we look at a lot of the early stage funding, a lot of these are investors and you know even the funds who are looking at a three, seven, five, at best a seven to nine year return. I think none of them have their appetite to kind of play the long haul game, mm. right? When you're talking of going head up against a Pepsi or a Coke or a Nestle or a Unilever. Right. I mean, you're talking of all generations, someone who's willing to, you know, kind of 15, 20 years sink it out in the long game. And that would never be easy. Having said which, I think a lot of consumer good companies are playing at the fringes, you mm. know, so, you know, small parts, there's raw pressery, there are these, a lot of these little niche players that have evolved reasonable sized businesses but certainly not big to, you know, to have that same scale to go up against the majors. Hmm. And uh, I'm assuming you uh, spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs who are either pitching to you or the ones you're, you're working with, etc. What are the three things you look for? 
when you think of a potential investment i would say one is which is the space they are playing in i think very mm. critical for me is a reasonable understanding of that particular space like i said i, I don't just look at it purely as a financial instrument mm. uh, angel investing or early stage investing but i look at it largely in terms of you know does it is it some space that i understand and where i believe this new venture is going to make an impact make a reasonable impact so it will obviously guarantee a return i think that's issue one issue two is really the amount of time you spend with the promoter the entrepreneur the co-founders whatever you call them because i think finally a lot of a business success is predicated on the values of the person starting it his passion his drive his integrity mm. therefore typically i would you know at least have two separate meetings with the promoters talk to a lot of people who deal with them their customers you know people who had a bit of a relationship with them and very often it's not just the pedigree of the business school right i know mm. that you know there's a blind eye saying oh if he's got enough you know i am it and that stuff i think very often it's just the ability of a person to persist as they say in the startup ecosystem uh, your money is safest with the guy who could make it work who could make it succeed and very often there are people you know who have the ability to make it succeed it doesn't work they pivot a bit they change the model they work it through mm. so i think the second part is the promoter the first is the space that uh, that they go into mm. i think the third which is slightly more uh, you know my look at it is to look at something where there's an element of intellectual property something that can be guarded mm. i always have this belief that there are very few businesses in the world that mukesh amani can do better right the scale he brings in is of an order of magnitude he can hire the best developers he can hire the best cto and so on and therefore i look at something that is based on a bit of unique intellectual property mm. that is a registered that is defendable and that is different and that to my mind really is you know will unlock the long term value of a business uh, that that I would seek to invest in mm. anybody who's who surprised you in in uh, you know when when you go with these three parameters uh-huh. and um, you obviously make a judgment on uh-huh. on someone but then it turns out different yeah, is there an interesting anecdote there it happens fairly frequently i mean there are businesses that you know you think you know it all from you know years of experience and uh, you know therefore you make a call and then suddenly you realize that the whole thing is going you know kind of unraveling literally you're going completely off uh, so i'd like to talk about you know very non techy business in that sense this company that was uh, focused on the fact that india has about 12000 fashion technology graduates coming out of institutes every year nift being the you know the big right. daddy of them all but a whole bunch of them now there's a big market to be served because every one of these fashion graduates has to create its portfolio their portfolio and parents are willing to pay top dollar for their kids you know the first venture into the real world is portfolio now there's a company that services this part right we'll help you make a portfolio we'll have uh, brick and mortar uh, you know studios where you can actually get, finish out your outfits designers design they don't right. just stitch in you know so buttons So this business model is something that I thought was a wasn't aware of. B, you know, I thought it'll have a finite life, and then over the last year and a half that I've been, you know, closely involved with the company, I've seen this business grow uh, enormously. So there are things that you know blow you. The other, my favorite instance is a furniture rental business. You know, business I knew very little about, and my going in hypothesis was furniture rentals is done by you know young geeks in their early twenties, right. you know, who can't afford real furniture. until i realized uh, you know like i insist on meeting customers that there are customers today who you know take furniture rentals as a lifestyle choice mm. and a specific instance of you know one of the customers i noticed was you know a lady in her 30s who was willing to hire who wanted to hire an anjali laminate painting for oh, wow. her for our um, for a living room because she was meeting an important customer she wanted to make the right impression now that just suddenly opened my 
eyes to the fact that, you know, business models are not as simplistic as you think. And, you know, what seems like a very flaky uh, casual thing actually is, uh, you know, really pretty significant. And, you know, a whole new generation today has come to think of furniture renting as a viable way to live, uh, which is a little different from, you know, right. my early years when, you know, you kind of want to buy everything that you... But also also an extension of the whole shared economy and the, the gig economy. That, Absolutely. Leasing cars, renting and, homes, yeah. renting furniture, streaming music. And that, to my mind, is part of that great learning that, you know, I'm enjoying this whole startup ecosystem, a lifestyle that's different, but it's real. And mm. today it's almost, uh, it's significant in scale. The millennials are the mainstream of our economy, right? That's how they choose to live. And that's how the country will live. I have a question on this millennial being the mainstream, uh, I mean, big part of the mainstream economy. But uh, for that, we'll just come right back on the Filter Coffee podcast after this very short break. Welcome back to the Filter Coffee Podcast. We're speaking to Lloyd Mathias. Uh, Lloyd, before we went on a break, you were talking about uh, how the millennials are the mainstay of, of our economy. Is there also a, a super preoccupation on them, right? Considering, you know, if you really look at the, some of the bigger spenders in, in many different categories, uh, they probably are not the millennials, right? They're probably going to be fringe. Do we as marketers uh, over-focus on millennials? Partially true. Uh, I plead guilty to that. I think that's because we use the younger segment as, uh, you know, as a predictor to future consumption patterns. Having said which, I'd like to say that over the last five or six years, the demographics have changed significantly. So, you know, let's say 2010 or 12, the millennials we talked about were people in their 20s and, you know, a lot of them in their very early careers in, in the workspace. I think today, increasingly looking at the classical definition of millennial, millennials now even in his late 30s, people, mm. uh, you know, 38, 39. So today, a lot of millennials have assumed critical positions in large organizations. A lot of the founders, the big founders we talk about are millennials. And I think with them, they've brought about a total change in the whole thinking. Mm. In my last corporate stint, I remember we were in HP and, you know, a lot of the CIO ecosystem that we were focusing to sell our PCs and printers were typically people in their 40s and such like, not very, you know, social media savvy. Mm. Today, you know, a lot of you know, CIOs or CXOs in many companies, you know, happen to be in their mid to late 30s. So they classically would qualify as millennials. And therefore, when we seek an endorsement from them, uh, which earlier we, you know, kind of do a little video shoot and try and plug it into social media, a lot of them, if they're happy with the products, they're happy to tweet off their own personal handles. Some yeah. of them are on Insta, on Twitter. So that alienation between decision maker and his ability to navigate uh, digital media that mm. has kind of eliminated. So I think the millennial has come mainstream. I think it's very justified for businesses to start uh, kind of focusing on him. Though where businesses tend to go overboard, sometimes they assume that every millennial is purely a digital native and is going to spend all his time on the net. A lot of these millennials in their 30s you know, are still comfortable watching television, consuming very mainstream holistic media. And, and you mentioned um, digital media and, mm-hmm. and, and how this is, you know, um, just shifting our focus away from uh, from millennials and, and the consumers to, to brands, mm-hmm. per se. You know, one of the things that uh, I've been thinking about lately a lot um, is, I think the last seven to eight years where not just millennials, but mm-hmm. all, all age groups now, safe to say, uh, have a significant play on social media. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether social media is better for it or not is a different story. But has it made brands fairly more vulnerable than what they used to be, right? You know, we, we were talking about this some time back. I think in the early 2000s, the mid-2004-05 areas, 
एफ एम सी जी ब्रांड स्टिल हैड इश्यूज दे वर मोर वनरेबल दैन फॉर एग्जाम्पल सम ऑफ द अदर ब्रांड्स एंड दो एपिसोड दैट यू विल सी बट टूडे वेन आई स्पीक टू क्लाइंट्स स्पेशली दोज हु आर इन द एफ एम सी जी स्पेस ट्वेंटी थर्टी परसेंट ऑफ एनी गिवन इयर स्पेंड डाउसिंग सम सॉर्ट ऑफ वी आर क्राइसिस दिस इज वन वे टू लुक एट इट द अदर वे टू लुक एट इट इज ऑल्सो दैट विद सो मच हैपनिंग the consumer memory is mm. uh, much more shorter right sure people still remember the pesticide issue with, with pepsi and all of that and i love your point of view on this but uh, you know a lot of people don't really remember you know the crisis that volkswagen had mm-hmm. sometime back and people are very comfortable buying a volkswagen sure. car today etc right sure. i don't know which which way would you go with i think both partly true so i think one is people's attention spans and consumer memory is relatively short mm. so what seems like a crisis you know if you look at the world of social media or twitter specifically i mean you live from trend to trend right mm. so what's the hottest topic of the day two days later just ceases to matter right and therefore consumer memories are shrinking and you know therefore brands have always a chance to recoup right mm. so you can come out of a crisis that much quicker than let's say 20 years back when johnson and johnson had a problem with tylenol right, right? they they yeah. stayed in consumer memories forever that's one part the other part i think which is critical is that brand owners and businesses don't have pure and absolute control over the brand mm. right there was a time when i began my career in the early 90s is that there was a very strong brand statement everything flowed from what a brand stood for the communication was one or two mega campaigns a year so the brand's point of view or the company the brand owner's point of view was 95% of what mattered mm. to the brand mm. i think today thanks to social media and digital empowerment i think a brand at best is you know a curator of conversations around what it stands for mm. so people have as much of a say and i think brands that have adapted and recognize the fact that consumers are as much part of what they stand for mm. have thrived which means the ability to participate in real conversations right. have your brand point of view so your brand stands for a certain set of attributes a certain set of values mm. but encourage consumers to come in participate create co-create mm. curate and even critique the brand sometimes and brands that have seamlessly flown in with consumer conversations have you know left a positive memory i mean i would just talk of one recent example a couple of months back there was that kind of mini fracas around uh, zomato about a consumer would turn yeah. down a delivery boy i think the fact that zomato was quick enough to turn the whole thing on its head and you know reinforce its strong values saying that we stand for you know, food delivery and it doesn't matter you know what religion our delivery boy comes from uh that works well and there have been cases when you know brands have been stodgy and very sloppy to respond mm. and uh, consumers haven't hesitated in calling them out so i think the ability to participate in a you know a kind of co-creating economy a co-creating world mm. is what a lot of older brands still have some 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 distance to go a lot of mm. newer brands are doing it seamlessly because mm. that's the ecosystem they understand the best yeah but uh, even there right um, mm-hmm. there are some brands who just and there is this other school of thought which is you know when you have a pr crisis um unless like some 50000 people 100000 people are talking about it the moment you you reply to it chances are a million people might talk about mm-hmm. it right mm-hmm. so this whole point in terms of when do you actually respond what qualifies a response is still a fairly unanswered piece right we um as 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 advisors to brand often mm-hmm. tell them that uh, you know there is there is a critical mass mm-hmm. and the critical mass differs for different brands what's your point of view on on the reason i was saying is that there are some brands who probably don't do anything about mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. that's probably the best thing to do at that point 
I tend to disagree with this because mm. my belief is that a good brand has never to shy away from taking a stand. Mm. So ignoring a problem with the hope that it will brush aside because conversations are so ephemeral uh, is just one aspect to it. But I think very often it's important to contend with the issue. Now, of course, brands may have various ways of doing it. You don't go head on against someone who's critiquing you, but very often you turn the conversation to a slightly more positive spin around mm. the same place. I think cleverly done. But having said which, I think, you know, being afraid of taking on a key issue that's growing around your brand with the belief that the fact that, you know, your brand handles got a few million followers versus a consumer who's got 250 followers who's raised that issue, I think is not reason enough to stay away. I think one has to address the issue mm. upfront, honestly, with full integrity based mm. on brand value and expect that over time, the mass of consumers who follow you will begin to see the fact that there is a clear rationale. Mm. Though I fully admit to the fact that, you know, as it happens often in life, in a, in a social media battle between a, a consumer and a corporation, the corporation is always at the receiving end, right? Yeah. It's, it's the David Goliath syndrome, fully understandable. But I would certainly believe that a brand has to stand up and be counted. And again, back to the old millennial question of the young people today, I think they expect a lot more honesty and transparency from their brands you know mm. stand up and be counted just don't kind of wallow in mm. obviously there are issues like you know sensitive issues like politics and such like that brands have to stay away from but even there and as you see do they have to stay away from that traditional rule has been yes stay away i'm beginning to sense that even that rule is weakening right With, so I'll, I'll give you an example sure, tell you why i'm sure, asking this it's, sure. it's um so this is a, a leading business school in mm. india mm -hmm. and uh um, i enter the class and this is a course I, i've been teaching for six years and mm. I didn't think twice before talking to them about you know, what their opinions were sure. on, on Article 370. Right? Sure. Uh, there was complete silence in the class. And then I asked them, you know, do, are they feeling uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. is, do they feel this is the wrong forum to discuss this? And they felt yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, this is a safe space. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just a visiting faculty. Sure. And these are all classmates. Sure. And uh, to me, you know, politics is uh, as much pop culture as sure. music is sure. or gaming is. Sure is. In fact, it affects your life more. Sure it is. Right. But somewhere we, we seem to be uh, fairly shy as mm -hmm. individuals mm -hmm. and even shyer mm -hmm. as brands. Mm -hmm. right? and, and not just uh, politics, for example, you know, um, something like what, what, what Nike did mm -hmm. with Colin, you know, becoming the brand ambassador after that incident. Mm -hmm. I don't see, an, do you see an Indian brand being that out there in, in expressing themselves? Not enough. So I totally mm. concede that I don't think too many Indian brands are absolutely out there. But having said which, just to qualify you know, the point you made, I think brands have to be a little extra sensitive mm. about taking a stand on deeply polarizing issues, right? So let's say the issue around Article 370, right? There is no right and wrong answer, mm. right? And you know, possibly we'll never know the real truth for many years to come. Mm. But it's clearly deeply polarizing for a certain set of people who think it's a great move and some who don't. Now, for a brand to transgress into that space and take a stand there, maybe might just alienate a big bunch of their consumers or people who stand closely. It might also be seen as the point of view of the people behind the brand, the corporation, and might have larger implications. So I fully kind of would say that some of these issues, mm. you know, one would need to tiptoe around or, you know, kind of scrupulously avoid. Having said which, I think a lot of current issues, I think it's important for a brand to align on the side of, where they believe there is a lot of righteousness and where there's a lot of their consumer support. You know, one incident stood out. I think uh, 
couple of years back when the Indian Parliament passed the bill for three seven seven, right, making uh, you know being uh, you know uh, same sex marriage same sex marriage legal. Yeah. Uh, Uber very cleverly, you know, entire route maps that you know appear in yeah. the black thing yeah. went the the rainbow colors. Right. I thought it was a nice way. It's a nice little way to show solidarity. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice way to kind of you know work closely with a very topical issue, and it brought a smile on everyone's face. I mean, whichever side of the divide you are on, I think there's no denying the fact that mm. they made a very nice statement. I saw something that Airbnb did globally. It's a it's a digital campaign. It kind of ran in yeah, India as well, yeah. which is really about how whoever you are, you can always go and pick a house and stay there, yeah. right? Across color, across race, across right. religion, across age profile, across you know sexual preference. So I think the more brands cue in a little bit of inclusiveness and mm. also be able to touch upon an issue that people are concerned about i mm. think it's a positive sign as long as it's done with sensitivity and not about deeply polarizing issues mm. which you know then can spin out of control you know i, I just realized we're speaking so much about the the indian consumer and um, um, you know among the people i know of you probably have the the most diverse and deep view of this consumer both you know from the technology markets as well as from the fmcg markets and now as an investor um, what is that one consumer truth that has surprised you over the years i i think finally boils down to one thing is that the indian consumer is very different right mm-hmm. very early on in my career you know kind of figured that you know the very middle class indian value is cheap and best right we want the best right. of both worlds right which in many parts of the world was not an acceptable paradigm there's mm-hmm. no such thing as cheap and best right they're two different paradigms i think it's the Indian consumers are ready to seamlessly navigate with these contradictions, right? I can do both, mm. right? So I can have this, you know, hugely wild lifestyle and, you know, completely align myself with global trends, but I will still go comfortably with the concept of an arranged marriage. Mm. And I think a lot of that reflects in a lot of Indian consumer choices, right? They can be seamlessly straddled two worlds, which I sense is not is atypical elsewhere. It's the fact that, you know, we are so comfortably multipolarized you know multi sensory in, in our approach to various brands to various issues that both things can run seamlessly mm. right which means you know in many parts of the world let's say with the influx of ride sharing for a lot of consumers the default option is do i drive do i take an uber in indian consumers is a whole lot of other things right can i jump into an auto rickshaw you know right. can i take a ride for, you know hitch a ride with my neighbor so i think it just opens up and therefore in a lot of choices you know in a lot of lot of brands and a lot of in a lot of lot of issues indian consumers are just far more dispersed than you would imagine hmm. right so this cultural dissimilarity of how it is in the north south how it changes every 50 kilometers on the road every state i think more than that is also the mindset that people right. just think differently so there's no real predictor of uh, you know the indian consumer mind and then the other big space i'm seeing it to an extent is also this whole emergence of e-commerce and organized retail hmm. right when e-commerce came people said oh my god it's going to spell the death of traditional retail nothing of that sort has happened when the large supermarkets came the you know the reliance digitals the chromas they said oh that mom and pop you know consumer durable yeah. store will die nothing yeah. of that's what happened just the recognition of the fact that ave is so vast so diverse mm-hmm. and there's no you can't box the indian consumer right mm-hmm. so i may be a regular big basket person every morning to get my groceries mm-hmm. but when push comes to shove i just walk down the road and you know pick up my little loaf of bread or whatever it takes so brands and marketers are so comfortable boxing consumers putting them into sociological profiles and demographic profiles i think the indian consumer always challenges that paradigm and 
makes it think differently. Right. Which is possibly one of the reasons why it's so usually exciting to be a marketer in India, whether it's B2B or B2C, the rules are changing. The mm. consumer is different. Mm. The consumer at different points in time is different. Mm. And uh, his choices sometimes are very similar to the to the world at large and sometimes are uniquely Indian, right? right? The concept of a missed call to my driver, mm. right? Invented in India. So I could think of a whole lot of categories where, mm. you know, Indian consumers do it totally differently. Mm. Beautifully put. In fact, that, that reminded me, I was, I was speaking to the MD of Perfetti in, in the same show and uh, we were discussing this this whole concept of Bharat and versus India and all of that and they're not two different markets they're two different mindsets which exist within the within absolutely. the same person right absolutely um, wonderful we usually uh, Lloyd end the show by talking to our guests about what they're reading listening watching what's, what's keeping you busy what are you reading these days so I you know very general I typically prefer uh, non-fiction so that's my thing I'm, you know I'm a bit of a news junkie so I consume a lot of news uh, one very, very interesting book I've been reading and, you know, which has kind of had me in splits for about a uh, couple of weeks now uh, is a book called If It's Monday, It Must Be Madurai. It's written huh. by this guy called Sridhar Perur. I think he's a Bangalore-based writer. And it's really about his experience, I think about 15 different experiences taking group group tours with a bunch of Indians. So from very traditional Tamil Nadu temple tours to, right. you know, going with a bunch of, uh, you know, distributors to Eastern Europe for more carnal pursuits. But great descriptors of, you know, how people are at tours. And he's had this lovely view. He's been totally a participant. So I think that's, you know, a book most recently read that I love. And, uh, you know, great sensitivity, but great observation. So it's uh, something totally interesting. I do tend to read a fair bit of history as well. You know, as things get more polarized, I've been reading a lot about, you know, some of the issues of the 30s, 20s, some of India's freedom struggle. You know, we're trying to understand more about Savarkar. It's clearly topical and newsy. So I think I've been pursuing reading with a lot more passion now. One of my big cribs have been that, you know, a lot of the work life, you know, reading tends to take a compromise. You're living a life between conference calls and, you know, late meetings and, you know, things, yes. stupid things like appraisals. But now I've been getting a lot more time to read and enjoy myself. Wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm massively jealous. But uh, the, the, the thing about history, it has always been a, an area of interest and... Um, more to do again with uh, the the current discourse. I started reading a lot about the uh, the history of Aurangzeb. Mm. Um, you know, what kind of a ruler mm. was he, etc. And incidentally, it's very interesting. There, there are probably two, three different people who have um, chronicled his life. One, one interesting that I found out is that he never believed in monuments. Um, never believed in. He, he thought it was, it's, it's a waste of time, and uh, his focus should be on plumbing and roads. Wow. And that's where we should be We should be going with this, right? But interesting yeah. to say that, just to yeah. add to that point, I think, you know, one of the challenges for all of us, and I'm trying to work consciously at it, is that a lot of our reading is very similar to what we read, thanks to social media being, you know, in a sense, right. being an echo chamber, yeah. right? You know, you get prompted the same kind of stuff that you like. Yes. You know, across, say, Twitter and such like, you'll finally follow a bunch of people whose views echo yours. So I think very often it's important to break out of this syndrome and read things of which one is not aware of or just, you know, clearly counter points of view. And that's something I'm consciously trying to work at, which is just reading things, A, I don't understand, or things that are completely alien to my point of view, saying, right. hey, there must be a point of point within that somewhere. And I find that usually enlightening, right? Because we're so much a product of, you know, our bringing and what we see and hear and the people yeah. we meet. Yeah. I think breaking out is important and, you know, reading counterpoints of view is... 
is a great way to to get going. Extraordinary. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time and being on the show. Thank you, Karthik. Enjoyed this chat. Thank Bye-bye. you. Cheers. So that was our show. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IBM Network. You can listen to us on the IBM Podcast app or ibmpodcasts.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at IBM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach out to me, I am the underscore Karthik. That's Karthik with an H on Twitter and Filter underscore Coffee. That's Coffee with a K on Instagram.